0: Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring Developer Advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. Welcome to another installment of a beautiful podcast. How are you this fine, sunny September 29th? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm a little bit depressed, if I'm honest. It's just, it's that time of year, friends. The days are dwindling, becoming darker and uh, colder earlier and I just I don't love it I'm not a fan I'm not even close to a fan Uh, and also it's been kind of a like this is this weekend there's a bluegrass festival here in San Francisco uh called Hardly Strictly and it's um it's a lovely uh affair you you it's in the it's in Golden Gate Park which is this huge park in the middle of San Francisco which is by the way a very small city so when I say huge park I mean a sizable fraction of the city's usable space um and remember, we're in a peninsula, right? We're actually geographically bound in a lot of ways. Uh, so it's a I love this park. That's what it makes it so special to me is that it's huge. It's bigger than Central Park in New York, which you know surely is more famous, but not nearly so magnificent uh, as as Golden Gate Park. And Golden Gate Park is um, you know there's this festival. It's a music festival. There's like five or six stages of musicians playing music and doing amazing things and it's free so people just come and they'll bring chairs and blankets and sit on the grass and listen to music uh maybe bring uh uh you know an adult beverage or something I'm not sure if you're supposed to do that or if people do do that but either way it's a lot of fun it's just and it's great it's sunny San Francisco weather you know we get we get like five days of decent weather in, in San Francisco per year and uh it usually comes at the end of September when everybody else is saying goodbye to summer we get our 5 days of summer finally so i'm looking forward to that uh i've been busy this week i i oh. so you know when it rains it pours right uh i've had like 5 no 4 nights in a row i don't think i did anything on sunday but i've had 4 nights in a row uh, where I've had meetings at midnight my time, you know, usually for Europe. And I think that's part of it, isn't it? <laughs> Europe is back, right? Uh, all my friends in Europe are are back on the scene, having come back from their holidays over the summer. Uh, and so life is starting to pick up a new, uh, you know, uh, intensity again. And, uh, you know, I'm it's fine. I just, once this festival's behind us, uh, I'm going to have to, it'll just be that, Slow inexorable decline. Um. Okay. Anyway, that's good. Uh. Been busy, very busy. This next talk, this October, is going to be super busy as well. Obviously, uh, I'll be speaking at Java One in person. I'll be at Confluent Ca- Current, which is the like Kafka Summit, basically. That's in um Austin. Uh, and uh, that'll be that'll be fun. Austin, Texas. J- Java One's in Las Vegas. Um, I'll be speaking at DevOx in Belgium and Antwerp. Yay. Uh, can't wait to go back to all these shows. If I'm honest, I can't wait to go back to Java One and DevOps for the first time since the pandemic, right? Um, and and of course, you know, not not in October, but in in December, there's Spring One, uh, which I do hope you've bookmarked, planned, and and uh, made reservations for because it's going to be amazing. Uh, it's six to eight December here in sunny San Francisco. Um, like I said, it'll be darker here by that point, but it's true for most of the northern hemisphere anyway, so you can't really blame us for that. And in the meantime, it doesn't snow here, right? It, it just gets a little windy. So uh, you know, you'll be a far sight warmer than a lot of places in the world. Uh plus all your friends on the spring team are here, which is great. And all my friends too by the way. So I'll be in the same lines as you uh hoping to talk to these amazing people. Um it's gonna be great. Yeah anyway I'm looking forward to that. Those are the like the highlights. Uh, that's that's nice. I think I might even be flying to Asia in October. I mean it's gonna be a very busy month uh i don't know just you know just stay tuned it's gonna be fun um and uh yeah what else what else what else yeah yeah i guess it's yeah i guess that's it i've I've just been very busy preparing uh for these various shows these various talks I'm, i'm going to speak at the kafka summit i'm so excited about this i um you know i love messaging anybody who knows me knows my my background is lots of messaging, right? I care about messaging uh, and integration and event-driven architectures and that kind of thing. And so, obviously, in that scope, obviously, uh, Apache Kafka is uh, excellent, right? It's an amazing piece of kit, um, and uh, you know, I I love the, um, the, the 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 richness of the ecosystem, all the different th- the things that you can use. Uh, with it, and I just love the the richness of the support in the Spring ecosystem. We've got the low level Spring for Kafka, which sits right on top of Spring Framework, and that provides a component model similar to other existing component models across the Spring portfolio projects. Things like at Kafka listener, you know, sort of like a, at reddit uh, at JMS listener, at AMQP, or is it Rabbit listener? It's probably Rabbit. You know, there's equivalent annotations uh, across the portfolio for different low level messaging technologies. And and we have that here as well. We have message listener for containers and we have uh, a template and, you know, the, the usual uh, odds and ends for support for a messaging technology that you'd expect in the Spring ecosystem. Uh, and then on top of that, we have the Spring integration project uh, binders or integrations for Apache Kafka. So you can send and consume messages from Apache Kafka in a Spring integration messaging flow. You can um you know you can create a gateway all all these kinds of integration patterns that you you'd want to have supported uh work um and then you have on top of that you have something like spring cloud stream which is a um uh it's a an abstraction for working with messaging middleware in terms of um uh abstract destinations that are indirectly bound to actual topics or queues or whatever on the back end broker and it's it's a, a very familiar functional style uh, programming model that lets you think in terms of, uh, you know, sending and receiving messages, and not in terms of the low level, you know, serialization, routing, networking, and all that stuff. Right? You just leave that to the framework, and it makes it trivial to to build uh, message, messaging style event driven architectures without worrying so much about how those messages get conducted or sent or whatever. So, I I quite like Spring Cloud Stream. uh, But what's really interesting is that in the Kafka world in particular, they have something called Kafka Streams, right? Kafka Streams is sort of like a a bespoke uh, Apache Spark. Like, if you want Apache Spark style uh, processing to hang off of your uh, JVM application, then Spring Cloud Stream, Kafka Streams is amazing, right? Um, And, you know, again, Spring Cloud Stream component model, but now you can. You can have functions that work in terms of K streams and K tables, which is fantastic, right? So all that stuff is just layers nicely and logically one on top of the other. Uh, and I was just I, I've you know I've talked about a lot of this stuff before, so I was just reviewing it and seeing where things stood in 2022. And wow, I was so pleased to find out that uh, not only did it all just sort of work. I took code from years ago and upgraded it uh, to the newest, latest, and greatest ver- versions, and it all just worked. But going going a bit further, um I even tried. Doing uh, ahead of time compilation, you know, for GraalVM, and that worked uh, in everything except for the uh, Spring Cloud Stream Kafka stuff. Um, but even that will start to work soon, right? That Spring Boot uh, three uh, and the, G- the AOT component model do not do for another few months yet. So, uh, I you know, plenty of time in which to get sort of that sort of uh, sort of addressed. But I just can't believe it just all worked, right? It's it's been uh, you know. It feels like a relatively recent thing, Um, but also it feels like a a long time that we've been working, making uh, AOT and and native work in the Spring ecosystem. Um, And, you know, it's hard to believe if you had said, hey, five years ago, I wanna turn this Spring app into a Gravium native image, uh, you know, we would have said, uh, (laughs) good luck, you know, there's no way, right? It would just take a lot of handwritten uh, configuration files. And now to just have a project to be able to start a project, write a bunch of code and have it all just work without anything, without any changes. It's just, you know, night and day. And actually a lot of that work has been since the pandemic. And, you know, the pandemic, you know, when I talk about the pandemic for me, I'm talking about March of 2020. I know that uh, I appreciate that for a lot of our listeners in Asia that all have been, you know, uh, end of December, early January of 2020, but either way, we're still talking less than 3 years, which isn't all that long a period if you think about it objectively. It just felt like an eternity, given our circumstances, you know. And so, really, all of this is coming together uh, since then, right? And we had the work being done before that, but to to have a demo that I was doing in in March of twenty twenty uh, that took ten minutes to have that go from like maybe it'll work depending on the alignment of the stars to it just works for huge swaths of the ecosystem and no tuning, no hand tuned code required uh, is is a win. You know, I'm a big fan. Um, and I'm a big fan of the Kafka stuff. I just can't wait to show you all that what's what this stuff is doing these days. You know what it looks like. Uh, it's really elegant. Um, and you know the Spring support for Kafka is deep, right? Uh, it's not just the top level stuff. It's small stuff that you really, you know, the Spring really, Spring team really cares about, like like transactions, right? Uh, or um, uh, you know, serialization customizations and integrations, just stuff like that, right? Really, really compelling. Uh, likewise, I've been really enamored of the uh, the new spring for apache pulsar uh, project right uh, which which is again it's it's a rich sort of uh, uh, approach to uh, apache pulsar which is interesting first of all because it's you know it's competent it's scalable it's fast it's uh, reliable but it's also very flexible and that's what i think is drawing a lot of people's uh, interest is you know it supports different consumption modalities it's it's multi model that is to say it, it supports kafka and mqp and MQTT and uh, all that. Um, It's got good, robust security. It's got dynamic routing and a lot of stuff that just makes it very compelling. Now, as it happens, I was actually speaking to a a few different organizations in Germany this week, uh, and I spoke with one uh, that said the majority of their code is Java and that the majority of that is Spring Boot and that the majority of that is messaging on Apache Kafka. Right. So clearly that large organization with tens of thousands of people um, uh, sees a value in event-driven, you know, architecture. You know, they, they've they been going in, all in on that. Obviously, there's a role for RPC style, uh, you know, synchronous request response style uh, endpoints, um, especially as insofar as the open web is concerned. But for the backbone uh, communication, uh, it seems like they're going all in on messaging, which is really heartening, right? Uh, I, I think there's something to be said about how the old is new, you know, it's, uh you know the messaging integration technologies and approaches and disciplines from days of yore are are back and better than ever uh and you know i'm a i'm still a a uh, member of the fledgling nascent hashtag no e s b movement uh so i'm I'm just glad to see that people are taking messaging seriously this time around and it's becoming more elegant um yeah, okay, you know you know who else I could have asked about all this stuff years ago and gotten the right answer for today years ago. Uh, Chris Richardson. Yep. He's uh he's our, he's our guest today. He's a legend. Uh, he's, I, I use the, I'm going to use the term thought leader in this podcast, which I normally apply to myself. I, I call myself a, a thought Lord to be ironic because of course I don't actually think of myself as that. Uh, but I, I can think of very few people who were right on the money years ahead of everybody else on like five different things, five big things, you know, uh, yeah, uh, Chris Richardson's, you know, prophetic, right? He he, um, he was years ahead of people talking about things like microservices, reactive programming, cloud computing, uh, you know, event-driven architectures and event sourcing. And he's just, you know, I always just pay attention to what he's looking at and what, what uh, captures his attention and what he's putting his efforts into because he's a brilliant person and uh, and he's just really an amazing teacher as well. So I, I just find um, every bit of uh, interaction with him, is just great, right? Um he he and I also are we also used to work together. Now that part was uh great for me. Uh I don't know if he would reflect on it as being a great thing for him, but it but it was a lot of fun for me. I, I loved working with him. I learned a lot. Um and we also ate well. He and I both love Indian food. So we we ate at some of the best Indian restaurants all around the world and uh, up and down uh in in India too, you know. Um so I, I I yeah, just great to see him, great to learn from him, great to have him on the show. He's a friend uh, to the Java community and the Spring community. Uh, you know, he was he's just been there for a long time. So, without further ado, my friends, please enjoy this
1: extra special episode wherein I talk to.
0: Ever make it you're just right there you know I could see your you know your side of the, I can see your neighborhood well I'm not sure if you're still where you were, but
1: oh I'm yeah no, I'm, I'm I know I can probably see your place too, right right yeah exactly <laughs> I, I didn't know if we'd ever get on
0: this podcast that's what I'm saying it's been way too long. you're one of the hardest uh, human beings to to pin down schedule wise uh, and i suspect actually well physically.
1: first off, you have to ask and then second, I have to be bothered to respond to your
0: request. <laughs> <laughs> In my head, I asked. I asked like for years, you know. Uh, yeah.
1: I'm not sure if that's the actual case. Hey, is
0: that a Starbucks mug?
1: Uh, yes. I didn't know you indulged in
0: subpar coffee. I like Starbucks. I drink it all the time. I don't care what everybody says, but I just, I'm surprised. Uh,
1: oh, you know that's um, when I travel. You know, Starbucks yes. is the constant, no matter where you are in the world, right? And I like their mug, you know, the You Are Here mugs. Yeah, all the different cities. Yeah, so that's actually Chicago.
0: My I, my mom has my overflow, right? All these extra mugs that I brought from all these different cities. She has like 40 mugs now, you know, in her home. And, and me, we have like a few, but I stopped collecting them. They're great, At like my aunt used to send postcards from places and i was like well that's it's nice. Oh yeah but no they're actually the trash.
1: they're actually really good mugs for yeah. drinking tea
0: yeah which i do now which you know is, is. um wait okay you drink tea that's all we know about you uh can you tell the audience who you are so, so i don't butcher it
1: oh Okay. Oh, you want me to introduce myself in a formal sense?
0: Or just in any sense that you would like. I don't <laughs> care. I was just going to say that guy and move on.
1: Yeah. Okay. So who am I? Well, I'm Chris Richardson. Um, the. The, I guess. Actually, no. Sadly, I am not the Chris Richardson. There is another <laughs> guy who was on American Idol. Um, oh, so he's September less famous. years ago. Drove a lot of traffic to my website for some reason, <laughs> even though I do not look like him, right? Um, so yeah, I've been developing software for ever. Um, my first paid job was actually back summer before college in 1982, and, yeah. and yes, there were computers back then. <laughs> um, these days, I'm well. Actually, going back a little. Um, Oh gosh, two thousand and six. My book POJOs in Action came out, and that right. was about some f- newish framework Spring, yeah. Never thought it would catch on, but I wrote a book about it, yeah. Um, along with Hibernate and just the whole POJO concept, right. Um, so that was definitely one thing. And then more recent years, I've been into what are now called microservices,
0: yeah, and
1: yeah. You know, I actually gave my first talk about microservices on a spring cloud foundry tour in kiev right I believe you were there too yeah. right yeah you mean oleg and a few others yeah april twenty twenty. 2012 2012 yeah so i think all i can remember is vodka yeah yeah, lots of, yeah. <laughs> lots, of, lots of vodka um Anyway, so i get i actually gave my first talk about what two years later but i think what became known as the microservice architecture and it, it's just constantly resonated with people since so that's what i do i just help organizations use the microservice architecture through consulting and training um and i wrote the book microservices patterns which came out four years ago but Remarkably is still current and occasionally pops onto the Manning um top 10 list. Yeah. It blows my mind.
0: It's a good book. I have it. It's one of the books I uh have paid money for. Didn't I didn't even hit you up for a free PDF coffee, I'm sure.
1: Copy. I'm sure you'll attest. Uh, yeah, yeah. no, no i I'd never give you a free one anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well uh, it. <laughs> it's a great book. Uh and
0: and it it I can't believe it's four years old, actually. It doesn't feel old already. I, I can't yeah. think it's still going to come out, but I didn't remember I read it already.
1: Um huh. Actually, one funny story about that is because the Manning have that early access program, right? Right. I I mean, I think I was writing it over a, a year and a half, two years, and I remember doing an interview and people were saying, okay, now your books come out, what are you going to do next? <laughs> and it's like, actually, I'm still writing it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> still, Still, still being done. The early access thing is a is a great mechanism for like open source style feedback. I I found that to be quite viable.
1: Oh Uh, yeah, it's so much better than slaving away in isolation. Yeah, and you know that which is what happened with Pojo's in action. Like that, I was literally stuck in my home in my cave (laughs) years working on that book. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, the isolation can be problematic because you don't know if there's a market fit. You just trust the editors to have some sense yeah. of if there's market fit or not. But tell us out there, you don't know. You know, you can't yeah. comment, You can't readjust. You can't do anything. Um, okay, so you clearly, from the timeline you just gave me, which is missing some important stuff, by the way. That's the problem. Is uh, you just indicated a few a few instances where you were ahead of the curve, but that's that's not the only, not even in recent memory. That doesn't even count for all the instances where you were ahead of the curve. Um, obviously you got spring right when it was early uh, and in pojos by the way that's a thing we haven't really I'm kind of glad but also don't you miss when that was when that was novel like it was I think people have kind of come to terms with the idea that you shouldn't be required to have 10 different interfaces for every business logic component but uh,
1: but still yeah well it's I mean I think this is very natural right like yeah I mean history I think is full of, of new but sort of in a, in hindsight obvious concepts <laughs> right and for yes and for a while you gosh you have to study them and research them and think about them but then they just sort of become accepted and you just go well of course that's how you do it right right i mean like you know and there was tremendous evolution with With sort of enterprise Java. I mean, I started with enterprise Java in uh, maybe 1999. Yeah. I mean, I forget with EJB1 and EJB2. And oh my God. Yeah. We thought it was great, right? It's woohoo. Well, I don't know. And then I even created patterns to make it easier. Yeah. It's in Rod. And (laughs) And it's like, when in reality, the solution is to do something, com- is to throw it out and yeah. do something completely different. And, you know, actually, POJO's in Action originally started, the original idea was to write a book about EJBs and stuff. like It was about enterprise yeah. development and it was about EJBs. But then, I think it was 2004, I went to the server side, Java Symposium. Oh, in
0: Vegas? Ah, so Yeah. Good.
1: And I, you know, I met Rod Johnson there, and you know, and there was a whole thing about, well, I suppose fundamentally like POJOs, um, AOP. I'm guessing Mm. that was there. Um, (laughs) Persistence frameworks, JDO. If anyone can remember that, Hibernate, and there was all this cool stuff. And I got so excited that literally that Monday morning, I went back to work and told my team. I was I was the architect okay, people, we're going to <laughs> ditch this EJB stuff, and we switched over to Spring. Ah. And, you know, and that was, yeah, that was 2004, right? So 18 yeah. years ago. What the heck?
0: Yeah, and, and, and Spring is even older than that for people who are, like Spring for 1.0 came out in 2004, but, you know, the early stuff was, before that, right? The first five yeah. of were written in 2001. So you think about that, 21 years, It's spring is old enough to drink alcohol. Some of those classes are old enough to drink alcohol in the United States, you know?
1: Like, <laughs> and been around. Yeah, and I'm, I'm still using it, and I still think it's awesome.
0: Yeah, good, I'm glad. And okay, so I, I don't mean to rush, but there's just so much here. That book, uh, that was... That changed the game. I remember there's a number of people that kind of glommed onto that uh that that sort of idea that hey, I could write code where my business logic is front and center, and the infrastructure the middleware the stuff that is required to make that logic work is hidden And the right that's a o p that's pojo's that's this whole decoupling. because yeah. I, I really i think i think about um the first versions first two versions of e j b right was well, plus three one and two right um the first three versions of e j b were you know, seven, you had X docket and EJB docket and seven different interfaces or whatever to make a bean work and just this nightmarish. And then, like, whatever the whole thing was with persistent entity beans, you know, that whole, like, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Like that all, that whole thing was just sideways, right? So we, we, I didn't understand it. I was young. I was, I'm a, a minute or two younger than you are. And, um, and so by that time, I was trying to learn, I was getting into the Java ecosystem. I felt like I was just I would I would have quit programming if I had just gone down that route. I would have just been I was be like I thought I knew programming. I've been doing it for years. Then I try and do EJB. I'm like this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand why it, it has to be easier. I'm missing something. And if if Spring hadn't come along, I would be a .NET developer. You know because of the verbosity of that original. By the way, and that's yeah. And in the cave, in isolation, development right. Those three three versions of EJB I think had to have come from just rubber stamping a vendor proposal or something like that you know
1: well in isolation it's just like i mean i don't want to critique it right but Hmm. you know there clearly were some bizarre decisions (laughs) like how how could you have a persistence api that did not have sorting (laughs) right i mean yeah what (laughs) and but but on the other hand it's just sort of things evolve right and everybody makes decisions in a given context that at the time sort of don't they make sense and you know they're subject to various constraints and then in hindsight you realize that's not a good idea right and so there there just has been this natural evolution um, yeah in many ways right i mean sometimes technologists ignore like state of the art and reinvent yeah. the wheel that happens to be square because they ignore existing pra- practices. Sure, but it's just just this evolution and yeah, and it, it, you make a good point, right? Like it was technology was in your face, right? Right. Whereas you know that, then that was the idea with POJOs is that it's mostly fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean business logic the core, the essence of your application, the reason it exists is actually sent is central. And right. then technology is sort of around that. Yeah,
0: I mean, fingers crossed. And at the time Spring came out, it was sort of an interesting discussion because we're trying to tell people, hey, use this framework to write your code in terms of POJOs so that you can decouple yourself from the infrastructure. Well, what was the infrastructure? Everything was at least a servlet container or better, right? So, really, what we were saying was decouple yourself from the application server so you can run on cheap, lightweight, easy to deploy web servers, Tomcats and Jetties and the like, right? Well, mm-hmm. then, but then, you know, then we're saying, okay, what's the other? Because I still have a, a servlet container in my app server. So, really, I'm just running on my app server if I want to be. So, what else am I decoupling myself from? Well, you're also running your code in such a way that you can test it. So there you had your two targets, right? Testing, and now you can easily just deploy all your business logic to a web server. And those two arguments, those that those two, when I looked at that and said, Oh, I could run on this app server that I pay some vendor more than zero cents per year, which is problematic given how lousy it is. Or I could run it on just Tomcat, which you know everybody knows Tomcat, and I can test it now, right? So that seemed like a good deal yeah. to do. But it wasn't that big. You know what I'm saying? Those are different targets. Those are different destinations for my code and my pojos, you know, the, the, that, that indirection, that in, that that decoupling from the middleware meant that I had these two new channels available to me. But they weren't really huge differences from what I already had in terms of like the runtime, you know, the actual, exi- the place where these things lived wasn't all that different. That decoupling, that that sort of indirection between my business logic and the infrastructure would become more useful, I think. And this is another one where you were super prescient on the cloud, right? Um, that was different. Now I can take my code that ran on my local machine and get it in the cloud.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, it's funny you're making me access my historical archives, <laughs> which these days it's like there's that today way. and then there's yesterday, and <laughs> I but I do remember that. But there was this concept, like I think one possibility one potential title for my book might have been lightweight java right Which or, um i think um but it was i i do think like the spring and the pojo model was significantly lightweight yeah much lighter right and you know compared with i mean it's funny WebLogic, for example was an excellent application server but it was kind of heavyweight, right? So mm-hmm. being at, um, I think maybe a, the project our company I worked on, we we actually had Spring running on WebLogic, but then yeah, we had the possibility of using a lighter weight Tomcat, um, and I think that was quite quite valuable.
0: Is it fair um, to say that architecture is what we do given our constraints,
1: and yeah,
0: what what things we optimize for given the choices we can make in our in our
1: constraints you know yeah and you know you met and then just another analogy occurred to me in the context of the cloud right like you know funny how i started tinkering with amazon ec2 in 2007 and it was awesome right yeah. and I mean, it was like click 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 oh i can have te- i can provision some virtual machines really instant i mean in you know and I was excited because it only took like five or ten minutes or so, right. or something yeah. great. But right. compared to what provisioning a machine was before, where you could say it was measured in months, right, right. But on the other, but in hindsight, then when then you know when, when was that? Twenty fourteen something Docker came out, which yeah. is so lightweight yeah that you can provision things virtually instantaneously you know in a sense well okay you've got to copy your massive container image around but but that was another sort of dramatic kind of move towards lightweight computing
0: yeah exactly yeah that that those new environments i think were we couldn't have foreseen those when we talked about spring in the early days but that Oh, it was such a great move, you know, such a great move to be able to let people focus on that higher level stuff, because now we can move them from just a web server to in the cloud, right? And that could still be Tomcat, but, you know, nowadays, the what your code does in the cloud is not just run as it used to on your local machine, right? That's There's things you can do specifically for the environment you're in in a cloud context.
1: Um, yeah. But it is funny, all these things have sort of faded, what was front and center have faded into the background. Like, yeah. do I even think about Tomcat versus Jetty? No. Uh, I just have this spring boot executable jar that starts up and listens. Oh, and, very true, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I, you know, it's funny, I think somewhere around here I have a Tomcat 6 book. Right, <laughs> It's like, those were good years uh, yeah i have the history of my my office is like the history of computing <laughs> about 20 30 years worth of books yeah um but yeah it's like i didn't even have to think hard about it really you know yeah. it's just and all these you just well the level of abstraction is being is is increasing
0: which is good right because there's so much more new stuff to deal with and once you got to the cloud, you just mentioned EC2, which I think we can all agree, given what came before, was a far sight easier, <sighs> but not exactly. You know, it's not. It was. It was. It was on the on the order of like, you know, slow web sphere, classic restarts. You know, like it took five minutes to do something useful. Yeah. Um, and so even there, there was a, a sort of a, a, a use case for like, takeaways. Give me some guardrails. Make it so I can get the. Uh, get something going more quickly. What was your next move there, right? Like you created something that is near and dear to my heart.
1: Oh, what did I do? Yes, well actually the first thing, which was maybe 2007, um, I created something called Cloud Tools, which as far as I can remember, was like some groovy framework thing that let you deploy your, well, war file on ec2 right my memory of it's a little fuzzy but i think it basically you could just sort of run this thing and it provisioned ec2 instances um that ran apache tomcat and MySQL. and this was back when there was vanilla ec2 no auto scaling no rds no nothing right, right. and yeah, I think back then I actually had some success. If I remember correctly, there was someone who had an, an ad agency that was running ads related to Miller Beer or something around the Super Bowl. And whenever they ran the ads, the, the load went up, so they would autoscale. Um, but then, then that evolved to into Cloud Foundry. Right. Uh, the original Cloud Foundry, Cloud Foundry Classic. And that, that was, it was kind of interesting because I was heavily doing big time spring consulting back then. And then 2008 economic crash happened. Yeah. And I've been working on Cloud Foundry as sort of a background project. And then when all the consulting business evaporated, it was like, hey, instead of being a zero revenue consulting company, <laughs> let's be a zero revenue product company. <laughs> right. Perfect. That's yeah. respectable. So um, pivoted, though that word might not have been used back then, to focusing on Cloud Foundry. Yeah. That that was basically taking the core cloud tools, tech, not provisioning stuff, making it much more sophisticated and sticking a, a, a web UI on it with right. monitoring and management. So with that, with like 10 clicks of the mouse, you could upload a WAR file and it would give you an auto-scaling, self-healing um, set of EC2 instances running Apache, Tomcat, MySQL.
0: Right. And I remember this was targeted very much to the Java community. Obviously, it's Tomcat, so this is a JVM yeah. affair, yeah. not .NET or Ruby or whatever. Um, and I remember because Java and Spring are, you know, for a long time they have been part and parcel of each other, right? Um, yeah. There was a lot of discussion about using and it's Tomcat, so you couldn't run, you know, your JBoss apps and EJBs there, right? You could run Spring apps, so it was really very much a, a very valuable thing for a Spring developer. I remember.
1: Um, yeah, and um, yeah, and that then that got acquired by Spring Source. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in in two thousand and nine. Right. Uh, was at right, and that was right before they got acquired. Yes. Uh Yes. So, yeah, it was May 2009, and then um, the VMware acquisition was like September 2009, if I remember correctly. So, I went from sort of a tiny sort of two-person company. I had this um, colleague and friend, Dimitri Volk, to SpringSource, which was maybe 150 people, I think, roughly, to VMware, which was like... Uh, 7,000 something like that in the course of I'm not sure I'm I'm just guessing yeah I'm guessing
0: too because I joined a year later 2010 and it was it was it was tiny you know now it's I mean I don't know what does Google say I have no idea nobody tells
1: me these things anymore Um, yeah um, I don't know all I know is is that it was way it had more zeros many (laughs) more
0: yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, I don't know how many. I don't know how many. Uh, Wikipedia says that there are thirty-seven thousand five hundred. I don't know if that's real. I have no idea. But that's a far sight more than seven thousand. That's thirty thousand yeah, more. I, I don't think it was that.
1: It was that big. But, but the once the game. This is my historical archives.
0: <laughs> the way, way, way back machine. Um, okay. So good so cloud foundry super useful obviously and it inspired in uh, then spring source and then vmware uh this sort of understanding that developers and apps had to be front and center right so again business object not infrastructure moving up progressively through the stack here right but now we're applying that to the cloud not just your your java code uh, yeah big deal huge and that was prescient when did heroku come out like this is around the same time as uh,
1: i yeah i think so yeah um, yeah there was a couple, there was a two or three other sort of pazzy things back App engine was that out yet what's the what's what was the one that became uh with m um Yard. they started off with as the the name that's Starship number designation for the enterprise. That was there maybe the code name in the beginning and then they evolved and then they got acquired maybe by Red Hat or something. Oh, anyway, ancient history.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, Cloudbees had one.
1: Oh, yeah. Weren't they there, originally there, cloud? There was a bunch. There yeah. was a Ruby specific one, right? Um, Ruby Engine Yard yeah are they yeah. still around i don't know i
0: don't know and heroku was originally ruby right like uh that was only ruby yeah stuff and then app engine google app engine the grandfather or grandmother of them all you know i think yeah uh yeah it was a very interesting time and all these uh players came to market with this like let's meet people where they're with their at their apps you know not just the infrastructure and i think since here we are you know uh 13 years hence um I think that you can kind of like to, to borrow from uh, "Fear and Loathing in, in the Cloud." Like, if you, if you look back from a far enough distance, you can kind of see where the wave crashed and then broke, you know. And then suddenly, there's this like, we want high abstractions, but just not that high. So people have moved down the stack a little bit, and we settled at Docker and, and Kubernetes, you know.
1: Yeah. Um, well, it's certainly, very- I feel like Docker. Yeah, it's kind of like Docker that was like a kind of really significant development yeah Um, sort of super lightweight the fact that i could build and test docker containers locally and then run them where wherever yeah um was pretty was pretty dramatic yeah huge Um,
0: at the time it felt huge now it just feels like pdf i don't nobody cares about What tool you use to view a PDF?
1: You know, it's just yeah. Used it used to be
0: Adobe <laughs> trademark, right? But it, now it's like whatever, you know. Yeah, every, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, it's goes, just it one of those things that's now just sort of faded into the background and 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 become right. pervasive, right? Well, of course yeah. you use Docker, right? Right?
0: Yeah.
1: Or at least something in that space.
0: <laughs> I so I yeah exactly yeah. It's is that it maybe like the Kleenex thing where we all say Kleenex but we mean tissue. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, one is a
0: trademark yeah. and the other one is not, right? Like, yeah. When I say Docker image, I don't actually care if there's anything from Docker Inc. in the in the project pipeline that's re- involved in creating it or running it. You know, there's it doesn't have to be these days. Um,
1: yes. Yeah. Exactly. Alas, poor Docker Inc. We knew them well. Yeah. I I shouldn't be so dismissive because they created some incredibly valuable technology, right? But
0: so um, these days, the one place where I still very much know about them and remember them and I care about them is Docker Compose. That's just super for development, right? Like I love Docker Compose.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, no. I've been a huge fan of Docker Compose for, for, I don't know for as long as I can remember, right? Like yeah. as far as I'm concerned, I mean there's from from a developer perspective, right? like you know the interesting thing is is that we should be like we should be developing spring boot apps um independently of where they run. Yeah. but then at some point, but Ash, but then there there's definitely uses for developers or developers should be using containers. Sure. Like for example, you know, my say my Spring Boot application, it needs MySQL, it needs Kafka. Well, yeah. do you want to install those locally? Or no. do you just want to um install Docker and then just run just run the infrastructure trivially using Docker Compose?
0: Right. And it is trivial. And it, it it's it's also <laughs> persistent. So if you if you have like a start Docker containers.sh or whatever, and you just each time you have Docker run whatever. That gets tedious. And if somebody else has the same container that you need for some other project you're working on, you have got, you know, you're both using MySQL, but just not the same MySQL. You got problems. Docker oh, yeah. code solves all that. You know, it's it's just
1: lovely. So but yeah, simple thing is every application code repository should. I mean, as supposed to be fair, there's other ways of doing this, but but like it's really useful if every application code repository has a Docker compose in the root directory. Yep. That just provisions the infrastructure that that well, service needs. And with the, and this
0: is, I think, I think that's the actual missing piece was in the cloud, it's not hard anymore to, because you mentioned classic EC2, no RDS, no, no infrastructure, no middleware. But now I can get message queues and databases. I can get, you know, I, I, I've got them up to my eyeballs, right? They're everywhere. It's easy to just point and click or use an API to get a new whatever. To talk to and get it managed and scaled and back up, backed up and uh, logged and
1: you know, oh yeah, here. but that's production, right? Yeah. I as a developer, I don't want to provision an RDS instance. No. Um, no. Because you know we talk about. I mean, you know, you, it's amazing how slow AWS is at provisioning RDS instances. Right. <laughs> <It's> so sad. <laughs> I better start one now so that after this interview is finished, I actually have one, um, right? Whereas Docker container is seconds, right? And Mm -hmm. I want to throw it away. Second, Mm -hmm. that just takes a second. So so having all of this, my development sandbox containing disposable infrastructure services that are basically configured through Docker Compose declaratively, which is under version control, right Um, is really something every developer should do i don't sadly i don't think it's that common but it's incredibly useful and then not only that the same docker compose file could build could pack could build the container image with with your service right well so you can test it as um as 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 a container too and then you know there, there are there are other abstractions as well like um like test containers is quite right. is quite useful, yeah oh yeah I, I generally like it yeah
0: um, I mean well, quite, with with, with uh, docker compose you
1: know? yes, yeah. I mean that's that's I mean, yeah, there's a couple of different ways either um, test containers can provision the containers itself or it can actually invoke docker compose right um. And I I've sort of done it both ways. And
0: works great, right? Yeah. One is more generic and one is more Java. I, I don't know if you can do test containers from other runtimes, but I know the JVM is a nice fit there. Um what do you think of code spaces and uh you know this cloud, this this ability to open up your IDE but run everything on a virtual session in the cloud somewhere. So you're not actually changing when you type on your IDE or you're making oh. changes. The remote yeah button.
1: You know, what was funny, like, there have been these web-based IDEs for a long time. Right. And I just, I kind of just dismissed them as, uh, (laughs) can I use a rude word here? Rude word. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) Like, I want to have a rich IDE experience running locally. Um, Um. And so I just kind of dismissed it. But then, yeah, then I discovered the whole like IntelliJ remote IDE capability. Right. And it's like, yeah,
0: it's so crazy. I yeah. just went into a Git repository and it does the right thing.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and collaboratively too. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, it, it's, yeah, there are definite use cases for that. Do I want to do it full time? Pro no. I like, you know, I, I kind of like my shiny new MacBook M1. Yeah. Carry it around and develop locally. But, um, but yeah, I I think about like, say with the Eventuate platform, right? There's a bunch of repositories. Someone wants to try one out. They could just use one of these, use a remote IDE for that. And they don't have to worry about installing Docker locally. And they just, yeah, experiment. Right,
0: which gets us to. <laughs> um, uh, so you wrote the Microservices Pattern book. Uh, you've been really great at going where the the puck is going, uh, as opposed to where it's been. And um, so one of those examples is reactive programming. You were talking about Rx Java and Spring years before the Spring team formalized our official support for reactive programming through uh the integration with reactor in spring framework in 2017 uh you talked about microservices years and years before people were talking about what they would call uh microservices Talked about uh, uh, cloud obviously um and and you also talked about domain-driven design and uh uh you know uh, event sourcing and and the like for years most people got religion about that what are those all first of all is all that stuff covered in your book microservices patterns
1: yeah yeah it covers everything you need to know um
0: and you actually create you coined i think you coined uh, if not i'm just gonna say you did uh my favorite one of my favorite patterns which is the the service chassis right um
1: was it you uh, or? i don't know i can't remember anymore <laughs> no. i but i quite like the idea of a yeah of a, I, yeah no, I mean that. Which is it's, it's interesting. I'm glad that you mentioned the service chassis pattern, Um because yeah. um, so one, one of my recent publications with Manning oh shameless plug coming up okay it, good please is a Manning Life Project. So well, it's actually a Life Project series. So so it's it's a collection of programming um, exercises where you. Create a well, first off a service template, which is a kind of skeleton application that you can just, oh, sc- sorry, skeleton service, so that you as a microservice developer can just um, literally copy paste that whole project and you have a running um, um, service that you can then plug in the actual specific business logic. Wow, cool. Um, and, okay, programming with chris yeah um, so that so that's so that's one of the patterns is service template which is really important and it kind of embodies all of the best practices It's say and your organization should have its own service template right that yeah. just right. says here's our standard libraries because you know your services should not have gratuitous differences right and right. it should enforce certain security concerns like Every service API should be secured via a JWT yeah using you know spring security, for mm-hmm. example. So basically what you get is a, a running service with some sample business logic and you just replace that business logic with your own and and you've, you you're well on the way to building to, to having your, having a deployable microservice. Actually, the service template in the live project, even has um, GitHub actions that, develop, wow. that builds a Docker builds and tests um a Docker image as well.
0: So you've got a production pipeline and I love GitHub actions that we could talk about. I love thank you, GitHub. I, uh, but anyway, yeah, that's that's super cool. Yeah. So you're like you actually have something like does it deploy to somewhere?
1: Um no. Well actually that could very well be a future live project series. Hit. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get back to working on that after this video. <laughs> um, so, and I'm super excited about that because that, yes. that's sort of the next step. So what so the end, the output of so the service template publishes a Docker image to a to the GitHub um, container registry. Sure. That's, okay. that's the end of it. But one of the interesting things, right, is the service template pattern is 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 glorified copy and paste.
0: yeah,
1: right? Because you just clone that code base and modify it. And so there's um the problem of drift. And yeah. you know, and if you need to update things, then you know that's you got to update all of your services. So that then leads to the idea of a, of the microservice chassis, right. so that's a framework that incorporates all of the common behavior, yeah, along with, say, um Gradle build plugins, because there's mm-hmm. actually there's usually a significant amount of build logic there and in and in practice, it could also include um, sort of uh, Pro, applicate or organization specific GitHub Actions or Circle CI orbs as well. Mm-hmm. It's all. It's kind of a comprehensive framework that just contains all the stuff you need. Which means that your service chassis is just a, a small amount of code that just references the the sorry the service template is a small amount of code that references the the service chassis. Right. And so, up, updating to the new version of, say, Spring Boot means first up, um, updating the service chassis, publishing a new version of that, and yeah. then, and then, um, updating all of the, the the actual services to use the new version of the service chassis.
0: Right. So, the chassis in the Spring Boot world is that kind of map to auto config.
1: Um, well. Yeah, so if you look at what the chassis is, it's a, it's, it's all our favorite frameworks like Spring Boot, um, Spring Cloud, sure. uh, Spring Security. Security, and all of those with a bunch of some with some extra stuff to yeah. actually glue them all together and make a few design decisions like yes, so REST APIs must be secured using JWTs. Right. That kind of thing. So simple configure, you know, because like Spring Security gives you a bunch of options. Right. And so the chassis oh, yeah. uses Spring Security and makes some decisions for you.
0: Pins things down so that we know what we're dealing with. with a, yeah. every, services have a common shape in production.
1: Yeah. So. Awesome. um and- so they're really so first and foremost, these are really powerful concepts. So every organization should really have a, a service template and a corresponding service chassis. Right. And also, my 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 life project is an awesome way to learn about those concepts. That's so
0: cool. Um, we'll get back to URLs in a minute. But one last thing here: uh, Do you talk about event sourcing and, uh, uh, you know? domain-driven design and the like in this manning live part oh yeah
1: okay cool oh this is going to be a good one so i mean i i you know i my brain is Uh object-oriented um and so i have been um, using object-oriented design for a gazillion years right i uh yeah since the 80s yeah pretty much 85, I, right. you know, 86, something like that. So yeah, can't imagine doing things any other way. And so in a way, so I'm a big fan, and I think Eric Evans is one of the smartest people around. Sure. Um, and yeah. domain-driven design is, is, incre- is incredibly valuable. Yeah. So just in general, right, like the concepts of things like aggregates and entities and value objects, yeah, um, it, it, you know, hugely important. Um, and then in the context of microservices, the the, the sort of the strategic patterns, they like bounded contexts, um, uh, are actually really really useful. And you know, knowledge of domain-driven design can inform how you define a microservice architecture right um so domain-driven design is great i agree Um. and then 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 event sourcing now this is an interesting one so if you were to ask me this question six years ago i would have gone (laughs) events event sourcing is the one true way to do microservices Um, Oh, and by the way, event sourcing is where you store a business entity as a series of events that represent state changes, instead of a a row in the database table that contains its current state, and and re, you reconstruct the current state by by well replaying the events. Right. So, and it and so way back I I. 2014, maybe, 2013, I, I discovered event sourcing. And the nice thing about it is you change a business entity, like you create an order that publishes an order created event because that represents the creation, right? Now, yeah. that in a microservice architecture, that's super useful because the customer service can subscribe to that event and go oh you've created an order let me reserve credit for that order and then it can publish an event that says credit reserved or um credit reservation failed so that that's sort of the idea right right so events sourcing automatically generates the events that enable microservices to collaborate right so I thought it was the one true way, right? And so, actually, at 2016 DockerCon, I gave a talk about microservices, Docker, and event sourcing or events as as the perfect combination. Okay. And Why do I smell a butt? But <laughs> what what I didn't um. And, it, and it's still a useful technique. And in particular, event sourcing is really useful in some contexts when, when knowing the history of an object is really important. So there are other ways to do that as well. But I went through that after 2016, I went through this evolution. And my first, first step was realizing that there are other ways to publish events. You can literally call eventpublisher.publish. Yeah. So rather than throwing out our favorite technologies like JPA or just regular persistence, you can just use. Oh, and by the way, I created the eventuate platform to implement event sourcing. Right. right? That was the other thing to support this. But along the way, I discovered, you know, let's just stick with regular persistence and explicitly publish events. And... But then it was like, "Oh, well, you need to transact atomically update your business object and publish an event." So I came up with this transactional outbox pattern where the right. message that you want to send is written to the database as part of the transaction and then and then published by a separate process. So that gave you the consistent tra- the atomic transactional messaging that event, sourcing gave you as well so that was the and and then that led me to create eventuate tram as in transactional messaging i'm not very good with names right so that was evolution one number one is explicitly publish events and use standard persistence technology right and then i learned a few more things and i realized that this event-driven collaboration between services was called a saga. Right. Right. I mean, I was a bit slow with, with, understanding, no, with understanding what I was doing, okay. right? So <laughs> that's was... be the
0: only time where that's true, and I don't even believe you here. <laughs> so, I, there's been a theme so far it's that you're not slow. You're usually years ahead of the pack.
1: Yeah. Um, that's funny. It's good, know, it's good to
0: know you were on time instead <clears throat> of like years ahead
1: for one time. And, and so events are are so event-based sagas are actually known as choreography-based sagas and the the other type of saga is an orchestration-based saga where there is a centralized orchestrator that tells the saga participants what to do by sending them messages like you, you have a instead of an event that's one subtype of message. You can have a command message that tells the recipient what to do. So if yeah. the order service is told to create an order, the customer service is told to reserve credit, and then the order service is told to approve the order. So okay. it's, it's, it's very directed.
0: Okay, like a um, GTA transaction manager. Kind what's of, that? Kind of like a JTA transaction manager
1: well it's it's it is telling the participants what to do but that's the that's a fairly kind of coincidental
0: all right so, is it but, uh is it asynchronous that is to say does this thing does this uh, cycle coordinator just send a message and then forget about it and just well, trust it done? Or no, strictly it
1: speaking anonymous? yeah so strictly speaking it could be done with rest but there there's sort of interesting requirements about how do you handle failure and how do you handle retries, especially with the Saga coordinator. And so one of the nice things about sending messages is the message broker automatically will, well, well, retry delivery of the message or the message sits in a queue until the um, participant is available to process that message. So using messaging, as a way of invoking operations on services is remarkably useful. And so that's that's like transaction, so like the tram framework um, implements generic transactional messaging. And then on top of that, there's a module that implements events. So you've got a nice API domain event publisher.publish. And then there's also a command um, sending and a command receiving API as well. This sounds like
0: CQRS uh, too, a little bit. Uh, well, commands and
1: queries. E, e, well, yeah, so CQRS, that's another pat collaboration pattern in the microservice architecture. Yeah. That's for implementing queries by subscri- by consuming events and using them to maintain a replica that's easily queryable. Yeah.
0: Yeah, uh, but I, I, but I think you mentioned the saga pattern. That could be the whole, you know, managing the integrity and the atomicity of the updates to the state. That would be done in terms of the saga uh, pattern, and that would be the command part of CQRS. And then, yeah, the result is you have state that you can now query, which with queries. Well,
1: yeah, well, I, you have a saga that updates a bunch that that ensures that a bunch of updates are done. for yeah. your services those services emit events that can then be used to update and uh, maintain a CQRS view.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, um, exactly. So these are all the SAGA, cl- these are all the service collaboration patterns where it's basically SAGA, CQRS, and then there's API composition for synchronously gathering data from multiple services. Right. So it means so that eventuate is in the messaging world, like, so API composition, you would just, well, just do yeah. it, making use of things like circuit breakers.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think circuit breakers and reactive service orchestration and composition will work just fine, but I feel like I want messaging. You know, as a messaging guy myself, I...
1: It, oh, yeah. Feels more I natural. mean, like, if you look at the food to go application in my book, um, like... Uh, HTTP is used to communicate with the outside, the API gateway built using yeah. Spring Cloud Gateway awesome project. Um, that routes require HTTP requests for the services, but right. all of the other collaboration between the services is actually done using asynchronous messaging. Right. Um, so yeah, your so ser- if your services are this sort of mesh of, of, of. HTTP or REST-based services, you're probably building a system that's remarkably fragile. Yeah. And don't do that. <laughs> with, well, with that,
0: I, uh, I I think we have... Yeah, this has been an incredible blueprint. Uh, basically, people, just... This, this podcast was just trying to get you to follow Chris's historical archive and just trust me, you'll be a better developer <laughs> for it. Where can people there's several things first of all where can people go get those uh manning uh live
1: yeah well see your your favorite place on the web is start.spring.io framework.io right
0: start.spring.io yeah
1: yeah whatever i forget sure i haven't heard it enough i i'm i'm (laughs) um no i guess you could say mine is microservices.io right that's Uh awesome so that that's a good place to start and then well from there like i'm c richardson on um twitter but go to microservices.io
0: okay and that'll have everything for the manning stuff for eventuate for
1: your- yeah there, there's links there's links yeah
0: okay i uh w- anything else i yeah i usually ask if you want to be found on the internet and if so where can, where can they find you Clearly you do. You just you volunteered your your URLs. Yes. Um and C Richardson, C-R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S-O-N. Uh you tweet once in a blue moon, it feels like. It's not always blue moon that rains.
1: I had this goal of tweeting every day at the beginning of the year. That lasted until mid-February. And then it kind of petered out. But I'm trying. I'm trying to 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 publish more content. I love your content so please keep it up
0: um yeah you're amazing i have loved learning from you all these years we got to work together for a hot minute uh, i feel the same way man a decade you're ago awesome. it's been great for me um thank you sir thank you very much yeah
1: thank you i enjoyed this
0: me too I sampled music from Steve Combs' Them From Morning In Springtime and Steve Combs's Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the production of this podcast easier I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and and just generally do more if you would like to advertise in the show then please reach out to me uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show then please consider supporting me at patreon.com patreon.com forward slash josh long for as low as four dollars a month thanks again no harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.